Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Welcome to WADA, ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to the 30th episode of ADA Live. The topic of today's show is the Fair Housing Act and the ADA. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about the Fair Housing Act and the ADA at any time on adalive.org. My name is Rebecca Williams, and I am the Technical Assistance Specialist for the Southeast ADA Center. Our guest today is my colleague, Kathy Gibbs, from the New England ADA Center, where she is the Director of Training and provides trainings and technical assistance on the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, the Federal Fair Housing Act, and related federal and state laws. Kathy, we are delighted to have you here with us today. And I'm delighted to be with you. Great. Hey, Kathy, I'd like to start my conversation talking about the basics of the Fair Housing Act. What is it? Who regulates it? The Fair Housing Act is a general civil rights law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of disability, but also many other what are called protected classes, so national origin, gender, race. Um, In fact, Disability was only added in 1988, so well, I know that doesn't sound recent, but the Fair Housing Act is a lot older than that. Uh, it's enforced, and the regulations are written by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Thanks, Kathy. That's a good uh, basis for it. Um, what are the key requirements in the Fair Housing Act? Well, I think there are four, and the first one, which may be the most important one, is that it's illegal to discriminate against somebody on the basis of disability. Um, For example, a landlord who might not want to rent to a person who is blind because of concerns about the gas stove and safety or doesn't want to rent to a family that has a child with autism because of concerns about noise. That is very simply discrimination on the basis of disability. So that's illegal, not okay anymore. Um, The second thing is this concept of reasonable accommodation, which I think we're gonna talk about in detail. Uh, The third is reasonable modifications. And for those of you who are ADA savvy, one of the complicated uh, things about the ADA and the Fair Housing Act is those terms are in both the ADA and the Fair Housing Act, but they're used completely differently. So um, there needs to be some clarification on that. And then the fourth key requirement is for new construction where there's four or more units, there's some accessibility requirements for turning spaces and maneuvering clearance at the door and the size of the bathroom and the kitchen and, and things like that. Great, thanks, Kathy. Uh, now I've got a two-part question. First, does the Americans with Disabilities Act have regulations regarding housing? And then second, what are the primary differences between the two laws? Well, that's a very good question, and once we get one we get fairly um, often. Because the Fair Housing Act included disability in 1988, 
when the ADA was being discussed, which was also in the late 80s, people said, hey, we just included disability in the Fair Housing Act, so really we shouldn't have housing in the ADA. So private housing is not covered under the ADA. In fact, it's very specifically exempted. What is required, though, is for public sector, um, a city, a town, a public housing authority, those are all covered under the ADA. So, for example, if somebody's developing a housing program, um, that would be covered under Title II of the ADA. But it's fairly confusing to people, and we get a lot of phone calls, and we have to explain, no, the housing is not covered under the ADA, but it's covered under a similar law, similar federal law, and that's the Fair Housing Act. Thanks for that explanation, Kathy. I'm sure it can be confusing to a lot of callers. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about the Fair Housing Act or any other ADA Live programs at any time on adalive.org. And now, a word from our sponsors. The New England ADA Center, located in Boston, Massachusetts, is a project of the Institute for Human-Centered Design and a member of the ADA National Network. The center provides information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability access tailored to the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, state, and regional levels. The New England ADA Center serves Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. For answers to your ADA questions, contact the ADA National Network at 1-800-949-4232. Welcome back to the second part of our program. We are talking with Kathy Gibbs, Director of Training at the New England ADA Center. Our topic today is the Fair Housing Act and the ADA. Kathy, we were discussing the requirements of the Fair Housing Act. I understand a tenant can request a reasonable accommodation or a reasonable modification. What is the difference between these two? The difference is that a reasonable accommodation is a change to a policy or procedure. Um, for example, you may have first-come, first-served parking, or I should, should say first-come, first-park parking lot, and a person with a mobility disability might need an assigned space closer to the front door. So that would be a request for reasonable accommodation. Reasonable modification is a change to the structure of the building. It might be adding a ramp to the exterior, putting in a roll-in shower, putting in grab bars. So anything which has to do with the structure is a reasonable modification, and things having to do with policies or procedures is a reasonable accommodation. Oh, and I think, as you said earlier, those terms are used in the ADA, but they're, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's different and it's totally confusing. So in the ADA, employment, Title I, has the term reasonable accommodation. It's nowhere else in the ADA. Um, but in Title II or, and Three, the term reasonable modification means basically a change in policies or procedure, but in the Fair Housing Act, it means changes to the structure of the building. So it is really confusing. It, it is confusing, and that's, it's great that folks can call uh, one of the National ADA Centers to get clarification. <laughs> uh, Kathy, is there a best way for a tenant to request 
either a reasonable accommodation or a reasonable modification? Is, is there a special form that they have to fill out, or how do they how do they go about doing that? Well, the regulations don't discuss that at all. Some housing providers have forms. Um, otherwise, if they don't have forms, I would put my request in writing. An email is fine. Um, I would explain that I have a disability, even if everybody knows I have a disability. For example, if I use a wheelchair or a walker or, you know, I'm blind and I have a seeing eye dog. You just want it to be in the request. And then you make the request, and it needs to be tied to the disability. So there has to be a link there. Um, I would definitely use the word need or necessary and not use the words benefit me. Um, you really want to make a close connection between your difficulties, whatever the disability is, and your need for the accommodation or the modification. And I do want to say one other thing, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize it. Not just tenants and landlords, it's also condo associations, homeowner associations that have obligations. So it could be that um, you know, you're in a homeowner's association and you might need some kind of an accommodation or modification, and they're covered under this Housing Act also. Great pointers, Kathy, and I have to agree with you. I, I'm a big one on documentation, so I think having that request in writing is, is really important. Now, I know that under the ADA, a person generally can't be asked disability-related questions. What about it under the Fair Housing Act? Can a, can a housing provider or that homeowner's association or condo association president, can they require documentation of a disability when somebody requests a reasonable accommodation or a reasonable modification? Yes, but only if either the disability is not obvious and or if the need for the accommodation or the modification is not obvious. So in those situations, uh, documentation can be required, uh, not asking for the person's entire medical record, just asking for information that's going to lead the person or the housing provider to understand why the person needs, uh, that, the, that the person needs whatever they're asking for and that they also have a disability. And it's fine for the medical provider just to say, um, my my uh, patient has a disability and requires X, Y, and Z. Uh, the housing provider doesn't have a right to your diagnosis. Thanks, Kathy. And that, again, is another big difference between the, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Fair Housing Act. That In the Fair Housing Act, there can be requests for limited supporting documentation, whereas under the ADA, there, there isn't. Um, so we talked about accommodations and modifications, and we know that structural changes are modifications, and money has to be spent when there's a structural change made. Um, so who's responsible for paying for that ramp or to have those grab bars put into a bathroom? Well, this is a big question we get frequently, and the answer is the tenant or the homeowner um, is responsible, the housing provider or the condo association or homeowners association. Uh, they're required to permit the person, but the person is actually required to pay for it themselves. However, and this becomes really important, if the housing developer or the project receives federal financial assistance, it uh, could be HUD funding, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or it could be U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development funding, then the housing provider pays for it. So when people ask uh, the question, which we frequently get, 
my next question is, well, is it a private or is it public? Is it public housing authority? Do you know if the project or the developer receives any federal financial assistance? That becomes really, really important. And sometimes it's often difficult to find out because it's not going to be on the website of the housing provider. Um, if it's a nonprofit corporation that's developed housing, very likely it had some federal funding. And I think state funding would also be important and might lead us to decide that the housing provider needs to provide that modification. But if it's just plain old vanilla private housing, um, no federal state money, then it is the tenant or the person with the disabilities obligation to pay for those structural changes. Oh, gosh. That, that sometimes sounds like it's going to be one of those, well, who's responsible? Well, that depends. You have to sometimes delve more into where the, who, who built the facility and who runs it and maintains it, I guess, to sometimes figure out who's responsible. You've just given us a bunch of great information, Kathy, about physical changes or modifications that a tenant can make to their unit. What I'd like to know is, are there any requirements under the Fair Housing Act for any specific accessibility features to be built into housing? Another good question. Only for new construction since March 13, 1991, if there were four or more units in the building. So in that case, the Fair Housing Act has seven design requirements, um, including an accessible route and clear floor space in the kitchen and in the bathroom. Uh, so that so that's only for new construction. It's not for alterations of a building, even if it's a gut rehab. Um, the Fair Housing Act requires some accessibility features, and I want to say that they're not tremendously terrific, particularly in terms of the bathroom where a turning radius is not required. Um, but yes, in that situation, but not for alterations. However, I just want to say one more thing. If your state has adopted the International Building Code 2012, that does include buildings that are being altered as requiring these kind of units. So just to complicate matters, um, we also look into state requirements when we're doing an analysis of what's required. So it sounds like kind of the Fair Housing Act has some minimum accessibility requirements, but doesn't necessarily going to always meet everybody's need. That is definitely true. There's no requirement on reach ranges. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are requirements on reach ranges, but it's for a limited number of controls. I think the turning radius is the big thing. There's no requirement, um, particularly in the bathroom, for a turning radius. Um, yeah. It's yeah. less than the ADA. An ADA accessible unit is going to be much more accessible than their housing unit. Wow, that's a lot of information, Kathy, but thanks a lot. Now we'll pause for a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. The Southeast ADA Center is your leader in providing information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability access tailored to the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, state, and regional levels. The Southeast ADA Center, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is a member of the ADA National Network and serves eight states in the Southeast region. For answers to your ADA questions, contact the ADA National Network at 1-800-949-4232. Welcome back to our broadcast on the Fair Housing Act and the ADA. We were discussing reasonable modifications and accommodations. 
Uh, this is all really very interesting, but it brings up another question to me, Kathy. Uh, when a tenant leaves, are they required to remove the accommodation? In other words, are they re- required to take out that ramp or remove the grab bars that they had installed? Well, HUD says yes for the interior and no for the exterior. I'm not exactly sure why they made that distinction, but if it's the interior, the grab bar, anything that you put inside, yes, the uh, landlord or the housing provider can require that you remove it. But if you put a ramp outside or a lift, um, they cannot require that you remove it. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I bet a lot of folks didn't know that. That's kind of good to know. Because uh, I'm thinking it might be pretty hard to, or expensive to tear down a ramp or remove a lift. Uh, to completely switch gears now, Kathy, uh, my next question is going to be regarding service animals. I know the ADA has a specific definition. Does the Fair Housing Act have a definition of service animal, and is it any different than that of the ADAs? Well, this is another interesting thing. The Fair Housing Act doesn't use the term service animals. In fact, the regulations really talk about animals at all. But the regulations make it clear that an animal could be a reasonable accommodation. Um, And it really could be any kind of animal. It could be a rabbit or a ferret. Um, We've had people who have snakes. Um, So as long as there is a connection that you have a disability and because of the disability you need, that's important again, um, whatever it is, the cat or whatever, um, then the housing provider has to permit that as a reasonable accommodation. So no definition. The other thing is HUD uses the term assistive animal, which just kind of confuses things a little bit more. but they don't use it in their regulations. They use it in some of their technical assistance material. So HUD considers an animal that you need because of a reasonable accommodation to be an assistive animal, um, but there's actually no definition. Okay, so if I understand right, it's in order, to, I mean, for a tenant to have an assistance animal in their housing, if it's like a no pets community, falls under reasonable accommodation because it's a change in a policy. Exactly. You got oh, it exactly. Great. great, great. Okay, so let's let's do another question here about service animals. So let's say it is a pet community, but they typically charge a security deposit or a security damage charge for, for pets. Can a landlord implement that security deposit or, you know, pet fee for a service animal or or for a assistance animal, as it's called under the Fair Housing Act? Um, No. Uh, The housing provider cannot require a person with a disability who needs the animal because of a uh, disability as a reasonable accommodation may not require that person to pay a fee or a surcharge, even if that is imposed on all of the other tenants. It's um, not permitted under the Fair Housing Act. Okay. Um, and, and, and I know you said the Fair Housing Act uses the term assistance animal. So does that include animals other than service animals, which under the ADA are generally dogs, um, that have been trained to perform a specific job or service or task for an individual with a disability that they cannot perform for themselves because of a disability? But does the assistance animal under the Fair Housing Act 
is it broader? Does it encompass other animals and other types of uh, other types of things that they may do for a person? Yeah, absolutely. And and they don't really have to do too much. A lot of people um, have emotional uh, support animals or companion animals. They don't have to be trained under the Fair Housing Act. Um, it could be a rabbit. It could be a ferret. It could be anything, any kind of animal. Um, we had somebody who needed goldfish and somebody who needed a snake, and that was really for emotional comfort. So as long as a person has a disability and needs the accommodation, the animal, and there's you know the connection there, um, that's considered a reasonable accommodation. So it doesn't have to be a dog. It really has nothing to do with the ADA definition of service animal, it simply is a reasonable accommodation, and it can be anything. Great, thanks. I, I'm going to sneak one more assistance animal question in there before I move on to a completely different topic. I know under the ADA, um, there's no certification required for service animals. Does the Fair Housing Act have a certification requirement for assistance animals? Um, no, the only thing that would be required, again, if it's not obvious the person has a disability or it's not obvious that they need what they're requesting would be that documentation. Um, but there's no certification, there's no training, uh, nothing like the ADA at all. Okay, great. That's, that's good to maybe clarify that. Um, so now I want to move on to accessible parking. Accessible parking spaces or reserved accessible parking spaces always seem to be a big issue with folks. Are housing providers required to designate accessible parking spaces? And if so, how does that sort of work under the Fair Housing Act? Yeah, that's another messy situation. We get a lot of calls about that. <laughs> I think it's really important to distinguish between accessible parking that has an access aisle and usually a sign and a person's need to have parking closer to an entrance, which doesn't have anything to do with being accessible unless you need that aisle. If you need more space in order to get your wheelchair out of the car or to get your um, your, your canes or your crutches or whatever, then you're, you're going to need more width than a regular parking space has. So the request that is often that the person really wants a space closer to the entrance not so much that they need an accessible space. So that would be an individual request um, with, again, the documentation if it's not obvious that the person needs it. In terms of accessible spaces, they're only required for new construction, as I mentioned, um, four more units in the building built since March 13, 1991. At that point, when, when it was constructed, the uh, developer, or whoever it was, re was required to put in a certain number of accessible spaces. But fast forward to 2018, um, and let's say you have a building that was built in 1985, there's no requirement to have any accessible spaces. Wow, that's, that's, that's interesting that there was no requirement back before then. But if I understand right, so now if a person lives in one of those units that was built in the 80s, and there was no requirement for a, an accessible parking space, if a tenant needs a closer space, they can request that as a reasonable modification. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be considered reasonable accommodation, um, but you're, you're 
correct. Um, and the call we often get is, you know, how many accessible people use the term handicap? How many are required because everyone's fighting over them? But it's it's really, if you don't need the access aisle and you just need parking closer to the door, that is a reasonable accommodation request for you. Okay, thanks for that clarification. Um, so, Kathy, we've been talking about a lot of specifics here, but let's just go kind of like to a broader picture. If there were one or two things that you would like to make our listeners aware of about the Fair Housing Act, I know that's probably kind of hard to do because there's so much involved with fair housing, but if there's one or two things uh, about the Fair Housing Act and the ADA, how maybe they relate to each other, uh, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, that the ADA does not cover private housing, but there is a federal law that does, and it's called the Federal Fair Housing Act. Because a lot of people contact us, and they're very upset when they find out housing doesn't have to comply with the ADA. But there is another law that does, and I think that's really an important message. People really don't always get that. And the other thing that I think is really important, because so many people really do need structural changes to stay in their unit or be in their unit, that it is, it's at the tenant's expense unless the housing provider receives federal financial assistance. That becomes a really key thing. Do they see federal financial assistance? Because it totally turns it, and then it's the housing provider's obligation. So that's a, a key issue. And I think it has to agree with you. Those probably are the two key issues. And I just want to encourage any of our listeners to, if you have housing questions, call your local AD or your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232 because there, it's a slippery, I mean, it's a tightrope between ADA and fair housing and which may apply and which may not apply, and there's, there's differences in the, in the two laws. Kathy, I really want to thank you for being our guest and informing us uh, about the Fair Housing Act and how it relates to the ADA and the differences between the two. I also want to thank our ADA live listening audience. The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and participation in this series, WADA ADA Live Broadcast. Remember, you may submit questions about any of our ADA live topics by going to adalive.org. A resource section is also available about these shows. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, everyone, please contact your regional ADA center. Again, that number is 1-800-949-4232. Keep in mind, calls are free and confidential. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.